It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome to the National Security Hour. I'm Ed Huglin, your host for this evening. In this episode, I continue with my American Patriot series, and this is most appropriate as we celebrate Veterans Day not too far from now. Today, I'm going to speak with retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Swayze, a true American Patriot, as we discuss his foundation, his service, and the lessons he's learned in serving others. I've had other American Patriots on prior to Ryan, as we've discussed the Palestine-Ohio derailment with Dr. Franco Musio. With Roman Bueller, we've discussed Keep the Nine, a constitutional amendment to keep the nine Supreme Court justices. And I've engaged with Michael Haywood, a retired U.S. Army colonel who wrote The Spoils of War, which gives keen insights to Russian's oligarchy and is also available on our bookstore at americaoutloud.news. The purpose of this series, regardless of the political leaning of my guests, is to look into the lives, lessons, and efforts of real Americans who've sacrificed daily for the security and advancement of a republic. Americans such as Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Swayze, today's guest, who's taken risks, who've sacrificed for their country and others, and in Ryan's case, his service in the United States Air Force post-retirement and his post-retirement foundation he stood up to live the American dream, advance American values, and enable future generations of Americans to enjoy the same freedoms and independence we have today. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. You can make a difference. This series is to bring to you everyday Americans like yourself, like Ryan, to show you that anyone can make a difference in our society, our country, and advancing our freedoms. The lesson for our listeners is you can change things for the better. You don't need any special permissions. You are empowered to use your civil and constitutional rights and act. In today's discussion, we're going to continue a strategic perspective, but with a twist. I talk about cognitive warfare and the importance of cognitive warfare and the fight between good and evil. Brian has a different specific perspective on this, given his foundation, the Walk the Talk Foundation, his background and service that drives him. And we're going to talk about that. I'm going to close with lessons learned today from his career and foundation as he undertakes a continued battle for justice against what I call the 800-pound gorilla we know as the Department of Defense. So let me introduce Colonel Ryan, Ryan Swayze, president and founder of Walk the Talk Foundation, Ryan's a 1999 graduate of the Air Force Academy. Count Swayze. <laughs> I love that. So all, all Air Force pilots have to have their call sign. So the Count. Served active duty in Air Force until his retirement in 2022 as an F-16 pilot, logging over 1,500 sorties in the F-16 and T-38. He served over 14 years of his career overseas in Japan, South Korea, Germany, Italy, and Iraq. Swayze served as an inspector general in the Air Force from 2013 to 2016, where he witnessed the numerous shortcomings in the Department of Defense inspector general system. His fuller bio will be available on our website when this show goes to podcast. You know, so Ryan, I was a former assistant inspector general, the first one for the intelligence community inspector general's office about the same time you were in, in your IG role. 
and I saw many similar things. So I'm not going to give away the farm, but as we discuss things today, I think we're going to find some compadre aspects there in this discussion overall. So let's start with the Walk to Talk Foundation. Brian is a veteran and also serving, as I said, in the ICIG's office. Give us some insights into your foundation and what drove you to set this up. Well, thanks, Ed, for the intro, and thanks for having me on the show today. Uh, there are really two facets as to why I established my foundation. First, you mentioned I'm a former inspector general in the Air Force, and uh, serving that role, I saw kind of one side of the coin of some of the shortcomings of the system, which I'll get into in a second. And then later on, serving in the Defense Intelligence Agency as a victim of reprisal. So I went through the inspector general system as a victim slash complainant and saw the dysfunctionality from that perspective. And it boils down to the fact that as a complainant, and usually you're a victim of some kind of uh, abuse, uh, wrongdoing, etc. as a complainant, uh, you're fighting that, like you said, 800-pound gorilla uh, as the lawyers term it, pro se, uh, on your own. The military advises you, uh, provides you no advice, no advisement, no counsel, no representation, uh, anything. You, as the victim, must prove your case to a government entity that is unlikely to find itself culpable. And so that's a very daunting task, and, and it's laden with a lot of uh, bureaucracy and, and legality and, and whatnot, as you know from your ICIG days. So the victim uh, who has gone through some kind of likely traumatic event is now uh, forced to go through yet another uh, burdensome, if not traumatic process, seeking justice uh, and, and with no one on their side, veritably. So that's why we stood up with the Walk the Talk Foundation. It's a, a group of, of advisors that simply provide advice and counsel, not from a legal standpoint, but just from a perspective of us, uh, many former service members, several former inspectors general uh, that know the system well enough to advise people on how to navigate it and offer them a higher chance of success in the process than they would be afforded if they had to do it on their own. Yes. Sorry about that. So very interesting is is that is and when you talk about that, when you talk about that whole aspect there, what what I used to tell people as the ICIG AIG for inspections is, if you're going to go forward with a complaint here, you really have to be ready to give up your career, give up your clearances, and 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 basically give up your life because. As you said, even with the Whistleblower Protection Act and other stuff, the 800-pound gorilla and the other aspects there, okay, they're not gonna they're not gonna protect you. They're just not gonna protect you. It's very um, sombering to hear, but also uh, simple fact: there are legal protections against reprisal. The government knows exactly how to maneuver around uh, those uh, because the gap between retribution, which is not illegal, and reprisal, which has a legal definition, that gap is enormous. Uh, and so, and the government is unfortunately very savvy at maneuvering through that gap. Uh, so you're absolutely right, unfortunately, to be a whistleblower, to be a complainant, uh, invites retribution 
Uh, and the complainant is relatively unprotected, whether it be security clearance, whether it be their career, whether it be their future career, whether it be their personal life. I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it from clients. It costs them dearly. And uh, I think that that's really, unfortunately, the advice we give to people we advise is that there is an enormous amount of personal risk you incur when you file a complaint and the theory of the protections afforded to you by the government in reality don't really play out. Oh, so interesting. So what kind of what kind of uh, support and advice do you give there? So you have a number of advisors, former inspector general uh, staff elements and stuff like that. Uh, so you, you do it by organization because what I found is each organization I work for across the intelligence community, DOD, and several departments, each one of them has a different means and mode to sort of maneuver this type of stuff, right? And to right. sort of either block you or whatever else. In some cases, uh, they're very quick to fold like a tent and pay someone off and get them to silence up. That's that's rare. In most cases, yeah. uh, they come at you with the 800-pound gorilla and sit on you, okay, and make your life a living hell until you you just give up and then there's a few cases where people don't give up and they continue on and then the legal battle and other aspects can could go on for years but so what kind of advice do you, you your foundation stuff support here for the people yeah you hit on a lot of important points is that um the government can win by doing nothing right essentially and that puts them at a great position of advantage uh they can outweigh and outspend anyone literally they have unlimited resources with which to do so uh and the key to success i have found in these cases is to uh, pursue the case outside of the sphere of control of whoever's carrying out the retribution. So if it's within the IC, then you work with the department or you work through Congress or you work through the press. Uh, because the one, um, really the one uh, uh, mechanism with which someone has leverage is public scrutiny. I feel, and whether that's via a legal means or congressional means or via the press, that really at the end of the day, um, if you're fighting the battle within this corrupted system and it is corrupted, yes, yes. You, you are doomed to lose. So you have to operate outside of that lane. And really, it's one of those three methods. Excellent. So, so what you're talking about here also is what I've talked about on this program a lot of times, whether it's uh, battling cognitive warfare. And in this case here, this is a type of cognitive warfare, right? It's a mental game between the 800-pound gorilla, whichever department or organization that you're fighting, and the individual. And it, it, it's, it's fascinating to watch the process here. But the challenge is, so, so give, us a, give us a little bit of an example. He talked about the Defense Intelligence Agency, and that you had uh, been gotten reprisal for against there. What what I found with the IGs was there is no such thing as an in independent inspector general. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's a fantasy. It's a exactly. unicorn pipe dream. Okay, and everybody says they're all independent. <laughs> I, I was a whistleblower myself, which you probably didn't know, but I was a whistleblower myself as the AIG for the, at the time, uh, 
DNI, Inspector mm. General's Office, before it became the ICIG. And the reprisal was phenomenal. And when I when I did the same thing, because I, I, I found the director of national intelligence and his ICIG in cahoots on something, uh, they summarily on a Friday removed me and put me in a new position as an independent inspector general on a Monday, right? <laughs> and the Hill staff in both cases knew about what was going on. Okay, the first case, they, they helped a little bit and they used my testimony to then preclude some things from happening. But in the second case, Okay, they were deadly silent because the politics and stuff in play. So, from your perspective, you know, give us a little insight in terms of the DIA aspects, and then what 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 happened there that people can learn from. Yeah, it's uh, there is no independence, and, and and if you looked at any organizational chart, you can quickly see why there's no independence. Is because an inspector general is subordinate to the commander uh, or director of the organization they oversee. It's it's inherently flawed. Um, but I, I, I surmise there's a reason for that, and that's because the military in institution enjoys that uh, symbiotic relationship. They have this inspector general system. They can purport to be independent, but really they can uh, oppress or compel or, or have influence over. Uh, but it gives the command this uh, kind of veneer of objectivity and, and a buffer with which they can say, all right, my inspector general or the inspector general found X, Y, and Z. It wasn't me. Uh, we're, we're separate and the IG is independent. It's total farce. Um, but it, it, it fools enough people with which it can continue to survive uh, inexplicably. But there's, there's no independence because of the hierarchical structure. And I saw that myself as an inspector general. I had a commander who controlled my uh, promotion, who controlled my next assignment, who veritably had uh, my career in his hands. Uh, I was subordinate to him. So when I would present something uh, and he didn't agree with it, well, then I'm, I'm faced with uh, two mutually exclusive options, either to press uh, with my loyalty to truth, justice, what I know, et cetera, or my career. And, and sometimes those didn't overlap. And you see that throughout the department, I think, when a commander or directorate says, no, this is my foregone conclusion, or this is the result you're going to find, Inspector General, they're, they're faced with that. And you put on top of that a lot of these inspectors general throughout the system aren't um, just transient military they're more in place they rely on that job for their livelihood so i think uh it's just normal human reaction to to go with uh what benefits themselves and it, it sometimes it's not nefarious it's just well this person has a direct influence over my life so i'm going to go with that and uh, complain and be damned yeah it's very interesting you, you talk about that because that you're exactly right you know there is there is the, the whole system is built with the facade, as you said, the facade that is independent. And not only when you take a look at even with the ICIG, it, it shows the ICIG off to the right of the director of national intelligence. But the ICIG's budget goes through the director of national intelligence to the White House. And what I was told by the principal deputy director of national intelligence at the time was, well, uh, you can submit your budget however you want, and we're going to pass it to the administration. 
but the administration gets the final say. Well, who does the administration look to to get final say from? Well, they go back to the DNI. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a self-licking ice cream cone. You you have absolutely no no uh, rights, no justifications and stuff. So we're going to go to break here in just a second here, and we come back with uh, Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Swayze. We're going to talk more about his uh, uh, foundation, what he's found, and the lessons learned overall. Uh, you can listen to our shows weekdays here on the NASA Security Hour, Monday through Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern. Every one of our shows within a couple of days of actual broadcast then goes to podcast, and you can listen to them at any time on the America Talk Radio Network. They were heard on iHeartRadio, our world-class media player, and awesome app applications like Apple, Android, and Alexa. All those links can be found on AmericaOutloud.news. We'll be right back. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. Clean, pure, with premium ingredients, Global Healing's Pure Plant Protein offers 20 grams of protein per scoop, and it's the perfect way to maintain and build lean muscle while indulging yourself. It combines enzymes and probiotics to maximize nutrient absorption, improving digestion, and your gut health. Available in vanilla and chocolate flavors, elevate your protein consumption while supporting your overall wellness with Pure Plant Protein. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Welcome back to the Master Security Hour. This is Ed Huglin, your host for this evening. On with me today, the former fighter pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Swayze, and also a former Inspector General for the United States Air Force. I myself, some Air Force vet, seven years served in the Air Force. Uh, but as Ryan and I are talking here, uh, what he's giving you insights in terms of his foundation, what he learned not only on active duty, but in the foundation aspects, speaks to why after just seven years, and this was back in 1991, Ryan, I resigned my commission in the Air Force. And, and I had a colonel come to me and says, hey, Ed, we need people like you to beat your head against the wall to break it down. And my retort to him was, well, sir, but this is why I'm departing and why I'm resigning. Because what we need is colonels like you to help lift me over the wall so I don't have to beat my head and break it on the first freaking wall I hit. Well said. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, just, it's just amazing the shared experience we have. And, you know, Ryan and I hadn't met before this broadcast. 
what what I'd ask him to give a little bit of input on is because I read an article, a very great article he put, and if you go to his website, uh, this the, uh, the Walk to Talk Foundation, I think it was dot com dot org. Yep. Dot org. Okay, Walk to Talk Foundation dot org, and that will be up on the on the on the links. When you go there, you can see this article, but give a little bit of discussion on the article you wrote on the DOD and, and your perceptions there, Ryan, because I think it was very pertinent for today's discussion as well. Yeah, so the article we're talking about is uh, the U.S. military second rate and loving it. And uh, it was a collaboration of a few advisors on uh, the board of the Walk the Talk Foundation just through shared experiences over the past uh, really collective decades of service that I and my advisors have and from perspectives we've garnered working with uh, around about 300 plus advisees at this point and it talks to how the military is very reluctant to change uh, because it benefits the leadership what I label as the leadership cabal of the institution they are uh, deriving a lot of benefits, whether it be intrinsic or extrinsic uh, from the current system as it is, and are reluctant to change it. And, and the people who are promoted are enjoying success in that system and are hence also reluctant or unwilling to change it. All the while, though, and this is really what all this gets back to, whether it be the article or my foundation, it's all about readiness for the defense of the nation. That's what the aim here is. But unfortunately, in our perspective uh, and our opinion, that's become a secondary, if not tertiary, priority for the Department of Defense. In fact, we, we go as far as to say we, it should be relabeled to the Department of defense of itself because its true priority has seemingly become just the existence and survival of the institution first and foremost for which to provide that benefit to the, the inner circle and the defense of the nation and, and uh, protection of the people and protection of service members especially seems to just kind of come as an afterthought. Oh, so you're, you're exactly right. So, so um, when I was finishing up my career, I went over to the U.S. Army Intel from the DNI because after the DNI uh, move and such like that, I stayed there for a few more years. I actually went over to the Defense Intelligence Agency to head up the Mazin Committee over there for before then, and I decided to go to the Army. But what was fascinating in this whole endeavor was uh, when you talked to and brought things up to the IGs, or you went to the Council of Inspector General for Integrity and Ethics. Okay, what a freaking joke. Oh, what a joke they are. They're a joke. Sorry, so, Siggy. So I, you're you're, yeah, you're exactly. broken. Siggy, yeah, you might as well have a cigar, right? <laughs> yeah. What, what I found out was, and I told this to the staffers on the Hill, because I, I dealt with both congressional and Senate staffers on both sides of the fence. And I told them, I said, a Siggy is a self-licking ice cream cone, because... When I first went as a whistleblower to the DNI and to the Congress to, to talk about an issue with the Inspector General's office, uh, I asked him, well, and I called the city and said, how do you vet people? They says, well, basically they submit a form, they put their name on the list, and based on the list we get, uh, we then decide to put them forward for nominations and stuff. I, do you vet, vet them for like if they're a good manager or not, if they have half a brain or a quarter brain? The answer was no. <laughs> Worse than that is, is I got into the system 
the people who were already in the system then sort of kissed each other's butts to position themselves to get positions on the Siggy, okay, so they can then put forth their own brand of IG they wanted to, right? <laughs> and, and that's actually how I also got hired into the DNI IG's office, which was interesting is I had several different job offers and I figured, well, I want to do something to help advance the integrity of the, the DNI and, and to help the people of the DNI, right? And so the first time I interviewed, they said, well, you did really good, but uh, we'd like to keep you in mind. You'll come back later on. What I found out is they already had someone in mind. So just the hiring of someone wasn't a fair practice. They already had it skewed for someone. Later on, they they came back and asked me to interview. And, and once I got in, then I finally figured it out that I, they probably skewed it for me too. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's just an interesting perspective on that. So yeah, it, it, when when you went to the DODIG or to the DIAIG, what were and you brought these things forward and you tried to push it up, what was their response? What kind of what kind of responses did you get? To sit down, shut up, go away, or you know, we'll look at it, we'll get back to you, and then like several years later, they said, "Oh, we forgot about it." Yeah, and my case is really the genesis of the foundation because uh, it was about nine or 10 months into the, we'll, we'll call it an investigation, and it appeared to me that I was getting stonewalled by the Defense Intelligence Agency's Inspector General. There was veritably no movement. It stalled, uh, and, and I came to realize after the fact that I was just another victim of their typical ploy, which is just to outweigh a complainant and they give up and they go away. And that's, I think, what they were trying to do with me. And so at the 10 month mark, uh, what I did is I just contacted a bunch of former colleagues from the attache service, which is a division subordinate to the Defense Intelligence Agency. And I said, look, I'm Ryan Swayze. Uh, when I was out in the field, I saw dereliction of duty, toxic work environment, et cetera. When I filed an IG complaint, I was then the victim of reprisal and I'm watching this IG investigation stall out, is anybody else seeing the same thing? And of the 150 plus people that I, I contacted, 31 and eventually 65 came and responded with the affirmative, like, yeah, we see the same thing in the agency. And so that, that was the pivot point right there. I saw what I felt was um, this dysfunction and corruption in the IG system as it pertained to my case, I just wasn't sure if it was a systemic issue. And when all those people came back and said, yeah, we're seeing the same thing, uh, where there's smoke, there's fire, to coin a phrase, I knew there was something amiss in an institutional level, at least at the DIA level, if not the entire DOD. And sure enough, as this uh, momentum grew, it became evidently, evident, I'm sorry, eventually legislation and, and, uh, and the birth of our foundation, because we quickly ascertained it's a department-wide, a government-wide issue, not just an individual-centric thing. Oh, yes, you're, you're exactly right. Government-wide, government-wide issue here. And so that's why uh, it's great to have you on today. But because this is the American Patriot series, one of the things I talked about up front, I want to highlight a little bit about Ryan yourself, okay? Because for everyday Americans, you wonder what you can do, what kind of impact you can have, okay? Ryan's having a phenomenal impact, and he's helping different people out. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Ryan for a second here. We'll come back to the other problems because they're persistent. <laughs> they're not going to go away. 
and uh, we can talk about those till the cows come home. But we have to figure out how to how to fix them. <laughs> and, and I talk about in my book specifically some some ways to then overhaul that whole whistleblower protection act and and SIGI and stuff. But for you, uh, when when we discussed things prior to coming on the program, very briefly, you talked about your daughter not wanting to have her grow up without being able to enjoy the amazing opportunities our country has to offer. So what drove you initially in terms of uh, overall inspiration and stuff like that, in terms of not only joining the military, but then uh, doing what you're doing now with the foundation? Yeah, I didn't come uh, up in a military family. I grew up on the west side of Chicago. Dad was an accountant. Mom was a teacher. Um, But they served the community just the same. And I think that kind of instilled in me the sense to serve. Um, I I then, as a kid, and still get goosebumps when I hear the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, what can I say? I love this country. Uh, I, I, I was afforded incredible opportunities. I still am because of this great country and I want to see it survive and continue to thrive. And that's ultimately what, what it's about. I want to see my daughter grow up with the same incredible opportunities, uh, that I was afforded because of this country. But in order to do that, we need to ensure its defense. Uh, so what I did and what I do and what I'll continue to do, whether it was in my time as an active duty officer or as a retiree now running a foundation, it's all about our readiness. It's all about the defense of democracy and the, what I consider to be the greatest country in the world. Oh, absolutely. I'm 100 percent with you. And that's, you know, that's why I do this program on a weekly basis is to highlight those same things. But you've had a fascinating career, you know. So I was an Intel puke. I started off with an Air Force uh, uh, pilot slot, got run over by some pothead in Boulder, Colorado, <laughs> caused some internal bleeding, so they took me off the freaking pilot's list, uh, went Intel. So you got to do what I was hoping to do. But give us some insights here in terms of what is a regional affairs strategist for Western Europe, one of the, one of the positions you had. What, what does that entail? Yeah, the equivalent at the time from the Army and Navy perspectives was foreign area officer. And I believe it was born uh, post-Vietnam era. Uh, We went into Vietnam relatively ignorant as a military in terms of culture, language, etc. And we really paid a high price in terms of getting uh, spun up on what was happening and the dynamics uh, of that region, etc. And so there was a big push in the early 80s to develop these officers that had a core competency, whether it be infantry or pilot or or what have you, but develop them as kind of a dual role officer with a region specific training and usually language training with that. And, And so I was fortunate enough to get selected for that track about 10, 12 years into my career, uh, Western Europe, initially learning German, studying with the, the German military and becoming a, a specialist in that region and then uh, ultimately serving as an air attache to Switzerland and Italy. Well, fantastic. Yeah, uh, you know, so I, I was stationed in Wiesbaden, Germany. It's a German, it was a phenomenal time over there. But you talk about so that, that the sort of regional fair officer, what's interesting there is, is and you're spot on, is, and, and I, I talk about this as part of the cognitive wars, we do not as a nation have the type of understanding we need to by region, by linguistics, by culture, 
the specifics of those different countries around the world to be able to fully operate, especially in the cognitive domain, the domain of the human mind, because to influence, to impact, to change minds, you have to understand those types of perspectives. So that's really an interesting background you have in terms of that foreign area officer type of aspect. But you also then studied under the German command and staff college. So, you know, you could have went to the U S air force version of that, but you went to the Germans version of that. Give us some insights there from, uh, you know, what you learned with our, with our allies there in Germany, were they more laissez-faire? Were they more strict? What kind of attitude did they have and, and, and things that you learned there? I took a lot of things away from that college. I think the most fascinating was from the German perspective, because of their uh, kind of checkered past, so to speak, uh, they really put a lot of emphasis on now um, what the Germans call Führung, which is uh, translated uh, leadership from within. So they really, and they, they even have a center of excellence uh, in Koblenz for this, which is to impart on their officers, yes, you have a chain of command that you must follow orders from, but first and foremost, and above all else, you are to follow your internal moral code. And of course, we all know the historic background for why that is. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I see a lot of parallels uh, in the U.S. military in terms of this danger from groupthink, this group mentality, and when that comes in collision with an, a, one individual's moral ethical code, unfortunately, uh, that code uh, uh, loses and the individual places more importance on following the party line in order to garner promotion, career progression, etc. And yes. although, of course, Nazi Germany is extreme, um, I do see some of those groupthink, group mentality parallels within our U.S. military. And I see the incentive and reward system being very much, okay, just go with the flow, go sing the party line, and that's rewarded. And officers are sometimes put in a position where they forfeit that internal moral code uh, for searching their that uh, whatever is incentivized or rewarded. And, and that's what the Germans were very keen on imparting on their officers is to, uh, first and foremost, you have a duty uh, to speak up and speak out against what you believe is wrong. And the U.S. military does not really... Um, have that place that same amount of value on, on that code. Well, so so again, this is extremely interesting because you know Ryan and I are completely separate lives, doing different things, but very much like experience and seeing things. So in the book I wrote on cognitive warfare, why we are losing and how we can win, I specifically talk about the things you just mentioned because they're critical. So for example, uh I call a lot of today's generals what I call the Brown Star Award winners, okay? Brown Star being the fact that they tend to fixate themselves to the rear orifice of another human being, okay, to get their uh, to get their next promotion, okay? And one of the reasons why I left the Air Force was I got tired of the Brown Star Award winners, right? <laughs> but to your last point, <laughs> to your last point, I lecture each year until they kick me out of because I'm not politically correct at the Army War College on cognitive warfare. And one of the key 
questions I ask them and I make notice is, look, in your lifetime, it is likely that you will be called to take action against American civil unrest. The question will be, will it be for legal or illegal reasons? Okay. The question for you all, service people, I ask them is, you took an oath to defend this nation and give your life for this nation. My question for you is, are you willing to give up your job for this nation? And is mm. without every single time, it's like a pin could drop and you can hear the pin drop. All right. Because it's that that level that the German, German army and military is talking about there. We need to do the same type of thing in our U.S. military because it's becoming too much groupthink. The bureaucracy lives to protect itself. And they're rewarding the brown star chasers, not the folks who stand up with true integrity and stuff. As we go to break here, we'll come back. We're going to talk more with Lieutenant Colonel Swayze about his career, his experience, and his foundation. But make sure that AmericaOutloud.news, that's AmericaOutloud.news, is your daily stop for all the latest news and happenings. We must all do our part, share our stories, the articles, the podcasts, and videos so we can help secure America's future. We'll be right back. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be with a company that shares your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. 
Welcome back to the NASA Security Hour. This is Ed Huglin, your host for this evening. On today, we have a fascinating guest, an Air Force fighter pilot, and now an advocate, an advocate for many people in the Department of Defense who can't fight for themselves and who need help for that, Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Swayze. So, so Ryan, before we go on to the lessons learned in the last part of this segment here, as we were talking as part of the American Patriot series, I'm always interested in terms of personal perspective is who influenced the most in your life and, and really had a broad impact on what you're doing now and, and life overall. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. I have to say my dad. So, uh, uh, unfortunately we lost him about two years ago. This guy was, um, the, mo if there is a, uh, a person who is too honest to a fault. I, I think that would have been my dad. I could never hope to, of course, to be that honest, but uh, I'll give you a little, uh, uh, anecdote here. This guy, uh, he wrote to the builder of his house uh, seven years after they moved out of it that he felt that he had paid too much for the water heater he had installed. And this was this was a guy who, I, I mean, it was truth and honesty epitomized. Um, I could never, of course, uh, uh, achieve that, that level of integrity, uh, nor, nor, nor could I try. But I think another aspect of his character which I try and personify is that when he saw a wrong, he tried to right it. And usually it was with himself. Um, but when he saw that disparity between what should be and what was, um, he, he was never settled to just leave it be. And, and that's what I took from him. And that's what I take now in my work from the foundation. There's a, a lot of times where I I'm sitting and reflecting and just want to just kind of throw my hands up and go, you know what, let somebody else take care of it. But um, then who would, right? And, and and that's what I think keeps me going and, and keeps my drive is that I see something that needs to change. I see the, the benefits for that change. And there's just something within that DNA that my dad passed down on me that, that won't let me rest until it is changed. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you from my own personal perspective, just talking to you today, I think your dad would be damn proud of you and what you're doing. Thanks, Because, Ed. you know, for our listeners here and stuff, what Ryan's doing is not easy. What Ryan's doing is fighting the beast, okay, and doing it every single day. And as he said, he didn't have to do this crap. He doesn't have to do this, Schiff, like Adam Schiff. I, I can't, you can't swear in real. So I, I pick out one of the most proverbial liars who is a counter to everything we're talking about here today, Congressman Adam Schiff. And, and I just try to highlight that as my own little cognitive war is to help people start maybe using his name in that way and replace the, the four letter noun with a new noun Schiff. Anyhow, different topic, <laughs> but, but what your, your, you know, your dad would be damn proud of what you're doing because it's not easy. These fights are extremely difficult for people to undertake. And, you're doing it on your personal time, your personal efforts, and at personal risks. And and you're right, the frustration level that I've seen in my four decades inside the, the national security arena from numerous people who fought the beast is they get frustrated, they get beaten down. But for folks like you, then you almost get reinvigorated and say to hell with it. I'm standing back up, going to punch you right back in the nose and get back in there to fight. And one of the key things you talked about here was the need to do this because of military readiness and such. 
And so I want you to give us your perspective on that aspect in terms of the readiness and impact here, because when people feel they don't have an out, this is our Department of Defense people. Remember, the 1% volunteer force. When you start to crap on these people and tell them different things about their life, and they signed up for the military because they wanted to love freedom, country, and God and serve our nation, and you start to do this stuff, Give us a sense of what's happening from your perspective, Ryan, to to our integrity, to our morale, and to our readiness. Yeah, there are quite a few studies out there now that show some uh, unsettling trends in that regard. First and foremost is the nation's trust in our military institution is on a steady decline. And by some studies, uh, the lowest point since the post-Vietnam era, uh, there's a reason for that. But more importantly, what's the effect? The effect combined with another statistic, which is few and fewer veterans are recommending service to their children. So you have a compounding effect and you're seeing it now in the recruiting numbers and that's much discussed in, in the public sphere is that the army navy specifically can't meet recruiting goals and that's because of this decline in trust i argue there are several factors but one of the most important ones is how much the nation trusts our military and how much it entrusts the care of their children to the military. And that is on a steady decline by several accounts. And that, yeah, so, go ahead. Oh, so, so no, I'm sorry to interrupt there. So we just saw the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, okay, an Air Force guy, right? An African-American black Air Force guy get put in place. But before he got put in place, what, what Brian's talking about, for at least from my standpoint, this guy exemplified. He put in place across the Air Force a policy that laid out percentages by race of who should be in the officer corps and who should be pilots. Okay. And when he testified before Congress, this individual, I, I think his last name is Brown, uh, this individual was asked, well, how did you come up with those percentages for those racial quotas? And he said, well, based on a percentage of, of the population. Well, that was an outright lie because the percentage he had for the white pilots and officers was about 15% lower than the percentage of what they're in the race. But the point I'm making here is as part of this cognitive warfare aspect is, is that you take people and it's supposed to be a colorblind society, okay? And then you start to categorize them, okay? What the hell is our military categorizing people by race for rather than quality and capability? And so then you promote a person like this to the head of our armed forces as a senior advisor to the president here. And to me, that's extremely disturbing. And so to me, I see that as one of the key reasons why we're driving talent out and, and other things out. Uh, so I'd like to get your perspective on, on that recent appointment. What, what, do you, what do you think, how that played into this overall discussion here? Yeah, a lot of factors. For, first of all, the erosion of trust is, is having an effect, right? And, and if the trend continues, I, I see uh, an unsettling confluence of two factors. Whether you, you buy into the uh, drum beating about impending conflict with peer nations or not, 
Uh, we need a viable military. We need healthy to promote our ideals and defend democracy, period, dot. We marry that with fewer and fewer people want to serve that military, then, I mean, if you extrapolate those two, what do you have? You have a very scary scenario. And and I, I've never considered myself to be an alarmist, um, but I am very concerned, and that's what keeps me going in part in this work is – um, these two trends, which I think it was General Mattis said, uh, better to have uh, your people bring to you contrary ideas than your enemy. A and that's where we're driving at, right? And, yes. and the second yes. thing is that, uh, and we discussed this in part in, in uh, the article, Second Rate and Loving It, uh, and, and I kind of chuckled to myself after spending three years in Rome. It's like Nero fiddles while Rome burns. You know, we, we fritter our, our time and efforts away on things that are not affecting national security while we're ignoring critical issues like people not wanting to serve. And, and that's why I kind of scratch my head. But to your original point is that how you treat these, these 1% uh, has an immediate secondary and tertiary effect on the nation's defense. Uh, if you disenfranchise them, if you don't treat them with respect and afford them the rights they are entitled to as Americans, yes. then they not only leave, they leave disgruntled telling their friends and family how they were treated. And there's your second and third order effect right there. No, so you're absolutely right. So, so reason I'm on I'm on my own personal jihad on this cognitive warfare stuff, and why what you're discussing here is extremely pertinent for the audience to understand, is because from my own perspective, having served four decades in NASA security, what I see is a purposeful undermining of our military. People say, well, that's too nefarious. It's too conspiracies. But when you take a look at it, being I'm, I'm a former uh, Soviet studies guy, former Soviet specialist as well. So I've studied their tactics and techniques. But look what's going on with their military right now. They bring in, uh, I, I used, I, he's just left, okay, Brown's replaced him. Mussolini Milley, I call him, okay? You know, Secretary <laughs> of Defense, I call him Autistic Austin, okay? Because uh, he, he has, he, he was one of the Brown star chasers I talked about. When you take a look at these two gentlemen and you take a look at their careers, they served three to four decades each, okay? Where in those three to four decades did they fry the alarm about white supremacists, DEI, or the need for critical race theory training? Okay. They said nothing throughout their careers, right? They were silent. You heard nothing about this type of stuff. All of a sudden, after Trump gets in office and towards the end of Trump's career, here's Millie and here's Esper standing with him outside the White House, where the church next door is burning, and the President of the United States is showing resolve. And these two people, be, instead of re retracting and fighting the false narrative that Trump was trying to you know, make a military coup in the nation, feed into it by then apologizing for standing next to the President of the United States while Rome neural burns, right? It's just freaking astounding to me here. And so... Now you come in and you see, beginning with the start of this president's administration in 2020, each of the military academies include in their courses 
DEI sub-degrees, CRT training, mandatory CRT training, mandatory uh, uh, equity training, okay, other stuff. And it, to me, feeds and reads like a purposeful indoctrinization using, using Mao's little red book for our future military officers. Because if you don't comply with our training requirements for you now while you're in the academy, and you don't agree that there's climate change, there's most white people are racist and such like that, you will not, you will not be serving long or you will not get the promotions. And I, so for me, this is a purposeful effort. I don't know if you agree with that or not again, because we politically, we have, don't have to agree, but that's what my, my scare, my thoughts and scariest is because we are the 1%. And once you start that downward trend, okay, you're not going to get it back. Right. So back, back to you, Ryan. Another uh, element we talked to in uh, America's military second reign loving it is how we're degenerating into basically just a socialized jobs protection program and less and less of a fighting force. And, and I see this trend. I, I, and, I, and a lot of the cases we deal with, I, I scratch my head for many reasons, but uh, the primary one is that the military member is the one that's not afforded the rights and the protections and the advisement and the counsel, but yet um, the institution, for, for lack of a better term, is. But that those people who comprise the institution, they're not our future leaders. They're not our future war fighters. They're not our future trigger pullers. It's the active duty and guard reserve to a certain extent as well, but it's the active duty people who aren't afforded any of these protections but we're the ones that expect them to carry out the nation's wars and and, and that just baffles me to no end and in part and kind of what you were talking to is that the military is kind of aside from a jobs protection program has over the years allowed itself to become uh, congress's social experiment uh, and less and less of a fighting force in, in that for the defense and instead um is just being constantly meddled with but meanwhile the congress that should be uh, being scrutinizing our expenditures and holding its leadership accountable for violating a law, et cetera, that doesn't do any of that. At the same time, meddles in internal affairs, which has nothing to do with the betterment of the defense. That that's what really is flummoxing to me. No, no, I agree with you a hundred percent because it, it's, it's very interesting is, our military, all the points you raise are pertinent and spot on from my perspective, anyhow. And and what we see here is a, a military, as you said, a social jobs experiment now. But who are they looking to recruit now? Okay. Not only have they lowered the standards, okay, but they don't blame their actions in forcing this social agenda on the military. Okay. It's like Bud Light not blaming Mulvaney, okay, for the decline in their beer sales, okay? <laughs> he can't he can't make this stuff up. But they blame it on the poor economy. And in one case and the next day they say that's a great economy. People don't want to join. But that's BS. So, you know, it it it's it's a proverbial battle. But before we go, we got about two minutes left here. 
what can people do to help you and your foundation? Because you're doing phenomenal work. You're doing ex extremely important, critical work for service members and such. How can they help you? Where can they go to either help fund you or volunteer or other things? Yes. Thanks for the plug, Ed. We're always looking for volunteers and or money. I, uh, I, all of my services I offer to uh, active duty and guard and reserve pro bono. I charge nothing. So our operations costs are just covered by generous donations. Uh, you can learn more about the foundation and how to help at uh, www.walkthetalkfoundation.org. Uh, and you can help right now just by getting the word out. Oh, fantastic, Brian. Look, it's been a real pleasure having you on as guest today. You are a true example of American patriot and one who follows their dreams, but includes in that dream, keeping America free. You know, the lesson for our listeners is you can make a difference. You can change things for the better. You need no special permissions. You are empowered. And like Ron, just use your constitutional civil rights and act. So go to the America Out Loud uh, uh, I mean, go to the Stand Up America Foundation website. It'll be the links will be in our podcast. You can go to that website. You can get in contact with Ryan. You can support the foundation. You can fund the foundation. I really advocate that you go ahead and do that. Take a look at some of the things they've written on there as well. It's phenomenal team he has. I didn't realize he had 300 volunteers, but you can always use more because you got a million plus service members. All right. So we need all the help we can get. I'm here on the NASA Security Hour to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. I will go outside of the fog of the daily chaos to give you a strategic perspective on NASA security issues and speak truth to power, the power of we the people. So we together, we together can best ensure the resilience and security of our republic. Thanks for joining us on the mission. The NASA Security Hour is the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America.